Uh, I want to uh, ask you a question. So have you ever had to wait for something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Beth let the cat out of the bag on that one. Uh, waiting for something. Is it fun or no fun? On a scale of 1 to 10, you just go like on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being uh, I, I don't wait for anything. I, the microwave bugs me because it's so slow. Or 10 being I love waiting for absolutely everything. I wish everything in life I could wait for. Where would you be? 1 to 10. <laughs> yeah, minus six. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the idea of waiting. Do you remember when you were a kid? So things have changed, right? When I was a kid, uh, I would read the comic books uh, when I was a kid, like last week. I would read these comic books. And in the comic books, you remember in the comic books, you could actually order things out of the comics? And they were like, uh, they were like uh, the decoder rings. What do you what? Yeah, cheesy things. Do you remember those little things that you threw in water and they grew into, like, living amoebas or something? What were those things called? Sea monkeys. monkeys. There you go. Yeah, you had a few, didn't you? For dinner. Uh, So, yeah, you could order all these things. um, And then you'd have to wait. And I remember one time I ordered a jackknife. Can you imagine buying a jackknife out out of a comic book? Yeah, it was way back when life made sense. So I bought, uh, I bought this jackknife, and I waited forever for this thing. I would go to the mailbox, I'd check the mailbox, and the jackknife was over there. And I still remember, like, it, would, like, it seemed like in my, in kids' year, uh, days, it seemed like years, right? But I think it was actually like three weeks before I actually got this thing. But when it came, it was like, oh, I got my jackknife. And it, it was so cool, and it was exciting. And, and, uh, but now, this generation, they don't know what it means to wait, do they? Right? I, I found out, like, this this new Amazon thing. It has a screen on it. And, like, you could say, hey, uh, hey Alexa, how much, is a, uh, uh, how much is a jackknife? And Alexa will give you three, three jackknives to choose from. And it goes, which one would you like to choose? And you, all you literally have to do is press on the one you want, and it'll come to your door the next day. You don't even have to get in your car anymore. And you can order pizza with drones in a few years, I'm sure. And I can get an Uber from my... Isn't it amazing? I mean, everything, everything these days you don't have to wait for. But that's probably because we hate to wait for things. Sometimes we have to wait for things that are really painful to wait for. Like relationships to heal. Uh, or broken hearts to mend. Or kids to come home. Um, sometimes it's, it's hard to wait. And I started thinking about this, and I thought, like, Christmas morning, right? Like, we don't even wait for stuff around the Christmas tree anymore. We just go and get what we want. But um, remember those days when you had to wait for stuff around the Christmas tree? Time drags on when we have to wait for something. And I want to introduce you to a guy. His name is Zechariah. And Zechariah is in the book of Luke. And Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And Zechariah was a priest married to Elizabeth who met Mary at the door. You remember we talked about this last week. And Zechariah had to wait. And he waited a long time. His story is found in the book of Luke in the Gospels, and he not only had to wait for a long time himself, but he represented a group of people who had to wait a long time. This group of people, they were, the, they were God's people, they were the Jewish people at the time, and they were waiting for Messiah to show up. And they're in their wait for Messiah to show up, the promised one, they got a little tired of waiting. Their zeal dried up, their religion dried up, their hunger for God had turned into religious r- ritual. 
There was still a few that loved God and they were doing all the right things and going through all the right rituals. But for the most part, they had waited for so long for this promise of a Messiah to come that they just were getting really, really tired of waiting. Zechariah is first introduced to us as a priest sold out to God, but going through religious motions, not really expecting anything to happen. He, like all the other priests at the temple, they would go through the religious rituals. People every year, they would make their pilgrimage uh, to the temple, and this temple was Herod's temple in the day. Herod, long story, Herod built a temple to keep the Jews out of his hair. So he built this temple for them, and they were like, yay, happy, and so they wouldn't revolt. And so all the priests ended up working at the temple, and some of them weren't even Levitical priests. They didn't care anymore. If you wanted the high priest job in this day, you vied for it with the political people of the day. You didn't even have to be in the right line because nobody cared anymore. This was a religious ritual that you just kept on doing, but it had been so long since anything happened. God hadn't spoken. No prophets had shown up. There's no angels showing up. None of that has happened for 400 years. And these people that were doing the temple stuff, they were bored to death. There was a few of them, Zechariah being one of them, that at least had a little bit of hope left. His religion wasn't necessarily as dead as the others, but they still went through the rituals. The Jews had been told that God would restore Israel, restore their land, or give them back their, their families, bring everlasting peace, but that was 400 years before Zechariah was even born. And so they were telling each other Bible stories and carrying on all the religious rituals, and they were going to the temple like they should, and they were going to the synagogue like they should. But there was no gas in their motors. They were just doing what they should do. And all they had to go on was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament at the time. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jan. They didn't have any of that. They had the Torah. They had some Old Testament prophets that they were dealing with. But they had none of the New Testament stuff. And so all they had to look back on was what the Old Testament said. And the last book of the Bible in the Old Testament is called Malachi. Or as we like to say, the great Italian prophet Malachi. And uh, so this is the last book of the Old Testament. And Malachi wrote to the people and he said, listen, you're doing this cycle again. In the Old Testament, you can read about this. The people sin, God throws them into judgment. They cry out to God, God rescues them. The people sin, God throws them into judgment. The people cry out to God, God rescues them. And it's over and over and over again. The whole book of Judges is about that. Constantly, that's why they went to Egypt. And, and they were, that's why they got thrown into Babylon, into, into captivity. Over and over and over, this happens in the Old Testament, and they get tired of it. Malachi writes to them, and he says, listen, we've got to stop this cycle. It's a crazy cycle. We get in trouble, God judges us, we cry out to God, God rescues us. Let's just stop it, and let's all be who we should be. And if you read Malachi, you'll find out that he's, he talks about all the stuff that they're abusing the poor, they're, they're, they're not caring for one another, they're, they're, their employers are taking care of their workers, they're, they're worshiping idols. It's all in the book of Malachi. They're doing all the wrong things. So Malachi writes to them in his book, and he says, listen, God will show up. The Messiah will come when we start getting our act together and acting like we belong to the Lord. And here's the last verse of the Old Testament. You wonder what the last verse of the Old Testament says? This is amazing. Behold, Malachi says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Wouldn't that be great, parents? Families will be families again with the Lord at the center. Lest I come and strike the land with a uh, decree of utter destruction. Elijah would come and that would be the next thing that would happen, and he will announce the day of the Lord, which means God wins. Right? All this craziness will stop. 
God will be in control, Messiah will, be, will rule, and we'll have our land back, our families will be normal again, and we'll be like we think we should be, with, Christ at, with God at the center, the Messiah reigning. But, as soon as this verse is written, there's 400 years of nothing. Not a thing. In fact, theologians call it the silent years. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years. Now, I'm Canadian, so help me with this. How old is America? (laughs) Yeah, they say, thinking, I'm not sure. Uh, 200 years, right? 250? All right, so. It's not 400 years. Can you grasp your mind around what it means to wait for 400 years? Silence from God. A lot of changes, by the way, in the world at that time. You want to know some of the changes that go on? God is silent, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Here's some stuff you may not know that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You ready for this? This is, by the way, one of my favorite periods in history, because it is soap opera galore. If you like soap operas, you'll love this 400 years of silence, because while God is not talking or bringing prophets or anything like that, there's a lot of weird things happening. So the first thing that happens is Greece rises to power. You remember Greece? Daniel talks about this in his book. One great guy that we know from Greece is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great started conquering the world when he was 20 years old. And he conquered the world by the time he was 23. It is said that he cried one night himself to sleep at night because there was no more land left to conquer. This guy was a crazy man, and he was talked about in the, in the prophecy that God gave to Daniel. By the way, do you know who prophesied in Daniel to him? The angel's name was? Gabriel. Keep that in the back of your head for a minute. Here's what uh, Alexander the Great conquered. Uh, Syria, Phoenicia, Judea, Gaza, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Lebanon, Iraq, Yemen, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, Iran, Pakistan, part of India, Saudi Arabia, a lot of Europe, but Europe wasn't really counted because it was ruled by Visigoths. It was ruled by people that weren't really uh, civil. This was a civil world. He conquered it all, even to the point where he entered into India. He died at age 34. And you know all about Alexander the Great. When he died, his, his kingdom was divided up into several different groups. Those groups had factions that vied for power. And one of the guys that rose to power eventually, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Have you heard of this guy? Also spoken about in Daniel to Daniel by Gabriel. Antiochus Epiphanes was the devil incarnate. This man brought the abomination of desolation. If you've ever heard of that, Abomination of desolation. This guy hated the Jews like no one in history. You think Hitler hated the Jews? He didn't touch this guy. This guy was worse. He went into the temple, the abomination of desolation. He slit a pig's throat and threw the blood all over the walls of the temple, totally desecrating the temple. He forced the Jews to worship Greek gods, and if they didn't, he killed them, left and right. It's said on one day that he killed or sold into slavery 40,000 Jews on one day. Oh, sorry, three days, three days. When Daniel saw a vision of what Antiochus Epiphanes would do, you can read this in the book of Daniel, he fainted. 
because it was so atrocious. Soon following Antiochus Epiphanes, this devil incarnate, following him would be the king of kings, it was told to Daniel. The king that would restore Israel. The king of kings. The Messiah, the promised one. And when Daniel heard this, he thought to himself, Oh God, thank you for restoring our people again. Even though we have to go through this horror, we will be brought again into our land, and we would be given the land back, and we would be ruled by the promised one, the Messiah. But after Antiochus Epiphanes, there was no king of kings for a while. In fact, the next kingdom that rises up and takes over this guy, their, their name is Rome. Have you heard of Rome before? Rome conquers Greece. They steal about everything. from Greece were the intelligent ones. Rome were the knuckle-draggers. I mean, we give Rome credit for everything. Rome didn't do anything. They just stole it all from the Greeks. They even stole their gods. All the Roman gods that you know are Greek gods. They stole it all from the, from the Greeks. These Romans were terrible people. Can I say that? Yeah, there's no Romans in here, right? Okay, good. Want to be politically correct? Rome rises up and takes over the world. This was also prophesied in Daniel. You know some Romans. Julius Caesar, you've heard of Julius Caesar, right? Anthony and Cleopatra, you know that story, right? Or at least you've heard of them, right? Uh, They made a mess in Egypt, you remember? They went down to Egypt. These guys are hilarious. They go down, they, these guys are big builders. They took credit for all of them. So they go down to Egypt, and they find out that the pharaohs were big builders too. So they get totally ticked off. And they, the, the pharaohs, what they would do is they would put their names on their things that they would build, their big monuments to themselves or the pyramids or whatever. So the Romans went down there, and they would take their names off and put their name on what was already there. These Romans... During this time, we also had a group of people rise up that we've never seen before in the Old Testament. We have the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots. Not in the Old Testament, but during the 400 years under Rome, all of these people suddenly... And by the time we get to Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, the good news, by the time we get there, there's a temple. Where did that come from? Because in the Old Testament, all they had was a tent. That's where we left off in the Old Testament. They were just coming out of slavery, and all they did was build a tent. Now, 400 years later, they have this temple, which is Herod's temple. So all these changes take place. But no prophets, no voice of God, no angels, silent, which is why we call them the silent years. And by the way, where was the king of kings? We're still waiting. This is the world Zechariah was born into still carried out all of, the, all of the sacrifices, all of the feasts, all of the festivals, still did all these things, but no king of kings. And everybody was getting, you think you're tired of waiting? Can you imagine these guys? All these different kingdoms that come in and conquer Israel and abuse them and rape them and take their land, and, and over and over and over it happens, and God is silent. And they are tired of waiting. So if you were these people... And you had an inkling of, okay, God is still in control. Who are you looking for? You're not looking for the promised one. Remember, who are you looking for? You're thinking about that last verse in the great prophet Malachi's book. And you remember he said, who are you looking for? Can we throw that verse up there again? I don't know if I got it up there again. Behold, I will send you church. You're not looking for the king of kings. You're not looking for the promised one. You're looking for Elijah because he comes as a prophet before the day of the Lord comes, before the Messiah shows up. 
So you're waiting for Elijah. Zechariah was teaching this. Watch for Elijah. He will show us who the king of kings is. He will show us who the Messiah is. They had a feast called Passover. Are you familiar with Passover? In Hebrew, Passat. This would be a time when they would gather together and they would celebrate a certain ritual way of doing this meal together with the hopes that God would restore them and they finish every Passat, every Passover, next year in Israel. But in order for that to happen, somebody has to show up. And so if you go to a genuine Passover, even today, you will find an empty chair at the table. Do you know who the empty chair is for? Elijah. Because he's the next thing that happens on the prophetic calendar to them. Even today they wait for Elijah, hoping that he will someday show up. And if I were a Jew, I would be like this. Is this guy ever showing up? In Talmudic times, by the way, there wasn't an empty chair. In Talmudic times, this is way, way, way back. They left the door open, hoping that Elijah would walk through. And eventually it turned into having an empty chair at the table. The symbol of waiting for him to come as a precursor to the Messiah. But he never shows up year after year after year. No prophet, no angel visits, empty chairs, and cups at the Passover table. And so like everything, over time, if you wait long enough, religion gets boring. It becomes an empty shell. Stuff you do just because it's who you are. But it doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. In fact, you might begin wondering if this really cuts it at all. Are we wasting our time when we do this? Empty shells of a dusty and out-of-date religion. Zechariah is introduced to us in the New Testament as a devout man who loved the Lord and raised his family to love the Lord. So he's an exception to the rule. But I give this to you this morning. I think even Zechariah was bored to death and kind of turned his religion into something of a ritual rather than anything that really meant anything at all. Here's why I would say that. Unexpectedly, one morning, 400 years into the future, after the Old Testament ended and under the rule of Rome, Zechariah enters into the temple and sacrifices, just like he has all the time before. The way you did that in his day is, <coughs> excuse me, they would roll dice, basically. And you would get a number, and if your number came up, you would be the guy that got the special honor of doing the high sacrifice on, the, on, the, on, the, on this day. And when they rolled the dice, Zechariah's number came up. And Zechariah got this very special opportunity on this special day to make sacrifice on behalf of the people. He goes in to do it. And unbeknownst to him, God has something very interesting planned for him. This day would change his life and the life of everyone around him. We can pick it up in Luke chapter 1. If you're using your Bibles, this is where we're jumping in. Luke 1 verse 8. Now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Down in verse 13. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Down in verse 17. 
And he will go before him in the spirit and power of who, church? Ah, of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Does that sound like any verse that you've ever heard before? It sounds like the last verse of the the verse of the uh, Old Testament. And when Zechariah heard this, he had to think to himself, no way. How would you respond? After all the soap opera, after all the silent years, after all of this, finally an angel shows up, and he shows up for you. And he says, here's the deal. You're going to get a miracle. Your wife, who's barren and old, is going to have a child. And that child is going to be Elijah. Not Elijah reincarnated, but a very picture of Elijah. He would do the job of Elijah. He would be who Elijah is meant to be. He would fulfill the last verse of the Old Testament. He would turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. And he will restore. He will, be, he will tell you who will restore Israel. His reaction was? What was his reaction? What was his reaction? Hallelujah, I'm, I'm so in love with this idea. Let's make it happen. His reaction was, no way. And because of that, he was made into a mute. He couldn't speak and he probably couldn't hear. And guess how long that lasted? Nine months. Nine months. But nine months later, here are the first words that he said when he saw the baby. By the way, he thinks this baby is John, his, this John that he's going to have is going to be the fulfillment of the last verse prophesied in the Old Testament, Elijah. Verse 67, here's what he said. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Does that not knock you off your seat? When's the last prophecy we heard about? 400 years ago. What does Zechariah do as soon as his tongue is loosed? He what? He prophesies because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This has never happened before in his lifetime. To anyone. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. What would your first words be if God muted you, put you on mute, like you do with your TV, mute for nine months. What would your first thing that you said, what would it be? Would it be to praise God or would it be to, oh man, I have something I need to tell you people. <laughs> yeah. Four months ago, you really ticked me off and I want to tell you about it. <laughs> you, know, you could have quite a storage bin of things that you want to share with people around you. But Zechariah, as soon as his tongue is loosed, he ends up giving this incredible prophecy. God uses him. God fills him with the Holy Spirit. And God uses him. And for the first time in 400 years, this devout priest that may have been going through the rituals, but finally has been converted to believe that God makes a difference today. Prophesies. For Zechariah, the silence broke away. And the Holy Spirit lifted him. And God, God not just used him to prophesy, But prophecy is literally God speaking through a person. God is speaking again. I love this story. Zechariah refers to this as the redemption aspect of the prophecy. He he uses all past tenses, by the way, which is really cool. Uh, He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has redeemed and visited his people. Why does he use past tense? Because all of this started happening to him nine months earlier. To him, it's it's as good as done. 
Verse 69. Do you know what God has done? My question to you is the same this morning. Do you, the angel probably was putting this into his heart, and he's probably thinking to himself, I've got to let people know. Do you know what God has done? Verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. This is a victory horn, the horn that you blow when you're about to have final conquering territory. You know, you're done with the battle. This is the victory moment. This is, this is like, let's celebrate the battle's over. He has raised up a horn. God is speaking again, the fulfillment of prophecy. I love this. And he, and he says, even if, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, all this reference to this, this silent period, we're tired of waiting. You can see it all through here. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Listen, he still thinks, he does not understand the Messiah is going to save the world from their sins. He doesn't get that. All he thinks is the Messiah is coming to give them their land back. So he, Christ, or the, the Christ, the promised one, Christ is a Greek word for the promised one Messiah in the Old Testament. Messiah is Hebrew for promised one. Christ is promised one in the New Testament. So if you refer to Jesus Christ as not Jesus' first name, last name Christ, that's not the point. Jesus, who is the Christ? Jesus, who is the promised one. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of this promised one in the Old Testament. That we should be saved from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah is thinking to himself, finally, we get our land back. Finally, this crazy cycle is over. Finally, we won't rebel and God won't judge us anymore. And then we got to cry out to him in our misery and then God will restore us to the land. Finally, the cycle is over. Finally, John has come in the spirit of Elijah and that means next to him is going to be the Messiah. And we'll finally get our land back. And so everything that he says is, he, he doesn't understand. It's like, it's like he opens a gift at Christmas, and, and it's like got, got 12 tiers to it. And he opens it up, and it goes from the, most, the least expensive thing to the, to, to the, to the most expensive thing. And, and, but you've got to take this apart, piece by piece by piece. And he takes the first piece out and says, hey, get my land back, sweet, puts the cover on and shoves it back under the tree. He doesn't understand all of the, the depth of what God is going to give him and to all of us. He doesn't get it, nor I don't think he could have understood it. But we do. We understand more important than land here is salvation and redemption here. And if God gets a hold of our hearts, God gives us a freedom from sin, a freedom from guilt, a, a purpose in life that we could never get any other way. We don't even understand the riches and the depths of our own salvation. But God does. And God knows what we need most. He pulls off the first layer and realizes, we're going to get our land back. Get rid of these Romans. No more Greeks coming through. No more Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll finally be ruled by somebody that will keep us here for all eternity. Very short-sighted. Verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Of course, this is 2,000 years before him when God promised this covenant to Abraham. And the covenant to Abraham was Israel's going to be a great nation. Right? I'm going to take you to the promised land. Everything is concrete. Everything is tangible. He doesn't understand the spiritual aspect of, him, of things. All he knows is that Israel is going to be restored to this great nation, and God will bless those who bless them, and God will curse those who curse them. Finally, we'll have our land back. No more abusive nations coming through. Verse 
For Zechariah and the Jewish people, John the Baptist would become the first stages of this prophecy finally coming true in real time. By the way, I want to explain to you why I think John the Baptist was Elijah. All right? Because if you're talking to a Jewish person, they're going to say, no, we're still waiting for Elijah. There's still an empty seat at our table. They're still waiting. I want to tell you why I think that Elijah was a fulfillment of John, or John the Baptist was a fulfillment of Elijah. Uh, Not just in the angel telling his dad, Zechariah, but there's a lot of other reasons as well. Do you know what Elijah looked like in the Old Testament? Do you know what he looked like? Well, you may not know. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah wore a hairy garment, had a belt of leather, and lived off the land. That's who Elijah was. He was used to doing that. Remember, there was a, a drought. And he had to eat, drink out of the river until the river dried up. And he was a very earthy kind of an individual. So John the Baptist shows up. And guess what John the Baptist looked like? Exactly the same. This guy ate locusts, for goodness sake. Here, you can read about it in Matthew 3, verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. This is intentionally given to us in the New Testament so that we understand John looked like Elijah. His food was locusts and wild honey, yum yum, and Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Do you want to know why? Because some of them thought this might be Elijah. That's why John the Baptist had such a huge following. Because some people started to believe, yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that great Malachi gave to us. I want to tell you more than that. Not only did he look like them, but Jesus believed that John the Baptist was Elijah the prophet. Fulfillment. Jesus said, his own words, Matthew 11, verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. Pretty plain and simple there, right? In fact, Jesus said this several times. In fact, Jesus said there's no one greater on the planet at this point in time than John. And that's why he, John is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. John is the one, his only job was to go, beep, 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 There's the Messiah. That's his only job. It's like he's, he's like the, the, the uh, what do you call the thing? Yeah, the metal detector. He's like the people detector. He's a Messiah detector. That's his only job. Jesus taught the disciples that John was the fulfillment of Elijah. The disciples asked him in Matthew 17, verse 10, then why do the scribes and the Pharisees say, first must Elijah must come? Everybody's teaching this. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has what church? Has already come. And they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. This is after they had taken John the Baptist's head off. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about who? John taught, uh, Jesus taught his disciples that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of Elijah. The whole purpose of John's life was to point toward the Messiah. And by the way, he did this even before he was born. You remember when Mary showed up at his doorstep? We talked about this last week, Eli- and Elizabeth's pregnant. The first thing Elizabeth's baby does, John the Baptist in the, in the womb, the first thing that the, the, as, soon as, she see, as soon as Elizabeth sees Mary, what does the baby do? Leaps in the womb. That's John's whole purpose in life. Point toward the Messiah. And by the way, he did that with his own disciples. John knew who he was. In John 1, verse 36, it says, He looked at Jesus, John the Baptist looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Beep, 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 Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John had disciples who followed him. 
But as soon as John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, okay, that's him and his disciples. He emptied his church because he taught them well. He said, I'm not the guy you're looking for. My job is to tell you who to look for. That's him. And everybody went, oh, okay. Packed up and they followed Jesus. Zechariah continues his prophecy in verse 74. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. He still makes the, the greater picture. He still thought this was just being saved from the hand of our enemies. But Jesus knew the full magnitude. And we understand now because we live on this side of the cross. Jesus is a fulfillment of the Messiah. And he didn't come to just save Israel and give them their land back. He came to save the world from their sins. He is the very essence of God. He is the Savior of the world. Zechariah is acting like this because he's desperate. And this is all that he knows. And I've got to tell you, he gets really excited about this. And we have so much more information than he did. And I wonder how excited we get about it. Oh, it's Christmas. Let's just get through it. <laughs> Let's have these parties. Clean the house. It's wrecked again. Clean it again. <laughs> Got to buy presents. Don't have any money. Put it on the credit card. <clears throat> Christmas is here again. Oh, rise up and cheer again. Yeah, maybe it's Christmas. This season is to celebrate one thing. I'm going to be your John the Baptist this morning, and I'm going to be your, 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 your Messiah detector and tell you. Christmas is about one thing. It's so that it would be a season of time that would point our hearts continually back to Christ. We even put his name in the season so we won't get confused. Christ Mass, Christmas. It's to remind ourselves that Emmanuel means God with us. You are not alone. In fact, that's what Jesus came. He came to die. He came to rise from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven and he said, it's really important that I do this because when I do this, the Holy Spirit can come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, I can be in every single one of you at the same time through all of history. When we gather together here as a church, Christ is here. He's not here in person. Like he'd have to sit here in this chair if he was here. Christ is like in one place at one time. But when he went back to heaven, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has the ability to be in every place at every time. Isn't that great? We're on this side of it. We get to Christmas and it's just a time to get through. And we lose sight of how desperate our situation is. And the fact that Christmas reminds us Christ has come. So my last question to you is, do you see what God is doing? Because... Zechariah turns his eyes toward us and like starts, starts talking to us in verse 76. And you child, he says, to talking to his son, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways for all of us. Zechariah did realize John's significance in the prophecy. Everybody realized that was looking for it, John's significance in the prophecy. It freaked Herod out so much that he decided to kill every, every kid, every boy under two years old. Because Herod wasn't scared of a savior who would come and save the world from their sins. He couldn't care less about that. Herod was scared of losing his kingship to the king of kings. And if John the Baptist is here, that means the king of kings isn't far behind. And so Herod does a terrible thing. And he kills every boy that he can get his hands on under two years old. People who knew what was going were paying attention. They knew who John the Baptist would be. They knew the significance of it. 
verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation. This is where he kind of pulls out a little bit more to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. This is, by the way, not necessarily a reference that we would read it, like a knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of our sins, which we understand Jesus did. But this to, to Zechariah would be, he will finally break this crazy cycle that we're in, where we say, God judges, we cry out, God restores the land. God restores our people. He saw this as finally, okay, John the Baptist is going to help us stay on course. The Messiah will help us stay on course so we don't get thrown out of our land again or get overrun by the next crazy group of people that come through here. John would understand how to save him out of a jam, Zechariah thought, but it was so much more than that. And these are the key verses that I love out of Zechariah's prophecy because, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God came to save us from the dark. God comes to pull people out of the dark. This is why John's big theme in the Gospel of John, not John the Baptist, but John the disciple, John's big thing in his Gospel was, Jesus is the light of the world. Over and over he says this. And he starts out right in the first few chapters. This is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And in John chapter 1, before he even starts, he says, In him was life, and that life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness cannot overcome it. But the light shines in the darkness. We are born into the land of the shadow of death. I'm reminded of that every funeral that I do. We suffer pain and loss of people that we love because we still live in a land that has the shadow of death over it. But Jesus has come to save people from the shadow of death. Jesus has come to bring light so that even though you sit through a funeral, there is hope. If that person gave their life to Jesus Christ, if that person is a follower of Jesus Christ, if that person called Jesus Lord, that person is not dead that person lives with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I go into funeral services for people that I know accepted the Lord. I don't walk into it as somebody who has no hope. I look into it like, man, I hope I made everything right with them up to this point because when I see them again, we're going to have a long conversation if we got stuff to talk about because I'm going to see them again. I'm going to see whoever that is again because that's a shell. The Spirit lives with Christ. And someday that shell will be restored with the Spirit and that person will walk around and we will live together <coughs> forever in, in the kingdom that will always last. Not a temporal peace chunk of land on this planet, but the entire globe will be redeemed. And Christ will rule once and for all. And you won't have a chance of ticking anybody off ever again. You couldn't sin if you wanted to because sin will be gone. And we will be restored as we should be with Christ as our ruler. King of kings, Lord of lords. And by the way, there will be not any need for light in the new kingdom. You can read about this in Revelation 21. Because the light that we have comes from the one who gives us light. The light of the world. And that is Jesus Christ. That is the message that Zechariah was missing. He only got a portion of it. But we get a bigger chunk of it. 
So my question to you this morning is this. Are you still waiting in the dark? A lot of people are. Passover for devout Jews still leaves an empty chair at the table. They miss the Messiah's arrival. They miss John's announcement. John arrived as a picture of Elijah. Jesus arrived to take away the sins of the world. And some people still miss it. And I want to tell you, there's an enormous amount of empty-shelled religions around the world that go through motions but mean nothing. Religion that matters to God is religion that calls Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. That's why in 1 John 4 it says, if you believe in God, bravo. But if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're missing everything. Without Jesus, your religion is an empty shell of waiting for something to happen. We celebrate Christmas because it's a reminder to us who follow Jesus Christ, something did happen. Jesus came. He saved the world from their sins. And if you're still sitting in the dark with no hope, you need to understand there is hope, there is light, there is life. Emmanuel means God is with us. If you wonder why we get together and we're excited once in a while about those things, it's because we've opened the present and dug a little deeper than than Zechariah did. We see a little bit more what God has for us. And we believe he has got a lot more in the future. He brings light to the dark. Gives life to people shackled in the land of the shadow of death. So you're still waiting for God to show up? The good news is you don't have to wait anymore. Right? Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. You don't have to wait anymore. Do you hear the silence breaking? Do you know what God has done? Do you see what God is doing? Then why are you still sitting in the dark? We celebrate Christmas every year. Christmas comes and goes. And I shudder to think of the amount of people that still miss it. Their religion is as empty as their Christmas season. It's just stuff. But for us, it's full meaning. Jesus has come. We do not serve a dusty, out-of-date religion. We should be more pumped than Zechariah. Emmanuel means God with us now, and we serve a living God. He is still active, and he is still present, and he is here with us even now. In fact, before we had the service this morning, I prayed with the pre-service team, and uh, part of the prayer was, let us understand and feel your presence among us today. This is why I love church so much. I don't understand why people don't, don't, like, this is my highlight of the week. I say this all the time. This highlight, you know why the highlight of the week? Like, yes, it's partly you, but mostly it's we all get together for the same reason. You're like, you're like the, there's Jesus right there. We do this together every single Sunday. When you sing songs, you proclaim Jesus as Lord. When you hear the message, and whether it's good or bad, a one or a ten, it doesn't matter. You still hear it as this is God proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Every single Sunday, we get to do this together. It's what we have in common, no matter if you're Canadian or American or Jewish or whatever you are, you know, translated and you're converted into, into a Christ follower. If you know Jesus as your Savior, we share the same mission as John the Baptist. We point each other and a dark world to the light of the world, and that is Jesus Christ. And we do that really well on Sunday mornings. That's why we keep the doors open. By the way, if you're wondering like, why we keep the doors open as long as we do, that's one of the reasons we do. We want to be louder than they are when we sing and when we preach and when we, when we greet one another. We want to make a difference because that's what we should do. Zechariah was excited about this much. We should be excited because we get this much. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for our time to talk this morning about Zechariah. Thank you for 
visiting him. Thank you that your angel Gabriel showed up and, and said, wait for Elijah. And then the next time, he, next time somebody's visited, it's the same angel, Gabriel, showing up telling people, Jesus, you are coming. So thank you for being so precise about what you have done. So precise about who you've chosen to show us who you are. Even in our own lives, it'd be hard to argue that you have brought us through a variety of situations so that you can show us who you are. You have been so gracious to us, so gracious, and we give you thanks for that. And Lord, we understand this is our job now. We are the ambassadors of Christ. So help us to do a good job at that, pointing people to who you really are. Like John the Baptist, we are not the light, but we shine the light on the light of the world. Help us to do that really well. And thank you for giving us this great, great responsibility. May we really do it well. Thank you that we don't have to wait anymore. Our gift has arrived. We enjoy you. We love you. And we thank you for giving your life, resurrecting from the dead, so that we could have life in a world that only knows death. In Jesus' name I pray all these things and give you thanks. Amen.